follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. We're broadcasting today from the world-famous Peabody Hotel in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. The Peabody, as you know, is famous for the ducks that march into the hotel lobby every day, led by their duck master. And Memphis is the site for the midwinter conference of the National Association of Legal Investigators. We commonly refer to them as NALI, N-A-L-I. Boonville, Mississippi private investigator Terry Cox is my guest. He's here to talk about his intimate acquaintance with high-profile cases. Terry is the national director of NALI, and he is our host for the conference. Pleasure to have you, Terry. Thanks, Francis. It's a pleasure to be here, and happy Valentine's Day. Well, thank you, too. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Thanks. Uh, so, fellow listeners, do you remember the WorldCom case that was fraught with fraud from the upper echelons of the company? Or are you curious about the details of Scott Sullivan, the financial officer from WorldCom? He was the fifth senior official of that company to be prosecuted. And then remember Tennessee-born Mary Kay Winkler, who killed her, maybe, maybe it's Mary Carol Winkler, who killed her husband, the pastor of the local Church of Christ? Well, Terry was the chief investigator for these cases and many others. Let me tell you a little bit about Terry Cox. He was a police officer, and following that career, he became an agent with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. Then he spent eight years serving as a criminal investigator for for a Mississippi district attorney's office. He left there and went to work as a staff legal investigator for the famous Farisi Law Firm of Mississippi, he then struck out on his own and founded his own private investigation agency. He, it's called the Lone Wolf Legal, Legal Investigation and Consultation. It should be noted that Terry is one of the few investigators in the country who has completed intensive training sponsored by the National Consortium of Criminal Defense Lawyers. And as I mentioned, Terry's the national director of NALI and is a member of a number of other professional associations. He's also, I should say, received the personal distinction of certified fraud consultant from the International Fraud Training Institute. And he's just served in many positions through NALI's Board of Directors and uh, National Chair of Continuing Education and all kinds of things that, where he has served with this uh, great organization of legal investigators. 
So, Terry, welcome, and um, it's just a pleasure to have you here. And um, first of all, let's talk a little bit about the conference and what's going on here in Memphis at the conference. Sure, uh, Francie. Uh, you know, Natalie has been uh, in existence since 1967. This is our 45th year, and this is our 45th Midwinter Conference, and we're, for the first time, hosting it in Memphis, Tennessee. And we... You know, today we have our executive council meeting, which we will conduct the business of the association. And tomorrow morning, we start our education, uh, which will go through about one o'clock on Saturday. We've got a stellar line of uh, presenters: uh, Judge Dan Stidham, who is the original uh, defense attorney for one of the West Memphis Three, is going to do an entire morning on Friday morning, uh, breaking down that case for us and the forensics and things that they did not have in 1994 that brought uh, a release and somewhat of an exoneration for those young men in 2011 when they were released. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the afternoon we have uh, my good friend Tony Farise who will be uh, talking on the criminal defense matters. And then in the afternoon after Tony, we have an uh, outstanding attorney from Jackson, Mississippi, Lance Stevens, who is a plaintiff's attorney, will be talking on plaintiff's issues for us. And then Saturday morning we start off with... Uh, Pat Artis, who is a very well-known uh, high-profile plaintiff's attorney here in, in the Tennessee area and around the country, and he's going to do a, a session on the newest technology available for courtroom uh, presentations and all. And then mm. uh, J- Jay Atkins, who is a civil defense lawyer, represents uh, a number of uh, corporations and, and different things, is going to do a, a uh, session on the do's and don'ts that can mess up your investigation <laughs> uh, very quickly. <laughs> things you shouldn't do. <laughs> yeah, and th- things we should do and shouldn't do. And, you know, a lot of times, as you know, uh, being veteran investigators, we find out very quickly how, how quickly things can go badly for us. So we need to refresh ourselves from time to time on mm-hmm. things we should and shouldn't do. And then exactly. we'll wrap up with uh, Terry McCullough, who is a uh, from a company called Any Lab Test Now. And they are also vendors here at uh, at our conference. And Terry's going to do a session on everything you thought you knew about blood tests, but were wrong about. So mm-hmm. she's going to give us the latest stuff about the blood test and the type of work that their company does, and how they can assist uh, the investigators and their clients around the country. They have uh, several, about 150 locations, I think, scattered around the United States. And this is specifically regarding DNA testing, correct? Yeah, uh, any type of they they do DNA as well as just general lab tests. Uh, uh-huh. Everything from uh, paternity to um, you know STD testing, or just to go and get your a CBC run if you need a blood count test. You know you can go and do it, mm. uh, and they, they do it for a, a very very reasonable fee, and they they have locate retail locations all over the country. Oh, that's and, good to know. Yeah. And of course, we we will have we're having our CLI or Certified Legal Investigator testing going on today as we speak. Uh, David Luther, our CLI chairperson, and his uh, team are, are, are testing two people today for who hope to uh, achieve the CLI uh, designation, which is a very sought after and respected uh, certification for legal investigators, and it's sponsored through NALI. And we hope to be pinning two new CLIs tomorrow at our luncheon. So good luck and to them. This is, and this is quite a uh, intensive train. Uh, well, more than training, you have to read several books. You have to uh, oh, yeah. go th- before an oral board. You have to 
write a white paper. There's all kinds of things involved in getting a CLI designation. It is very prestigious and sought after. It, it is. We consider it the, the uh, bar bar exam for investigators. You know, mm-hmm. it, like you said, it is a very lengthy process, very intense process. And once once you achieve it and test through it and, and get the designation, is something you're very proud of. And we do have to continue recertifying it on every three years. So it's uh, it's something you work hard to get, but you also have to work hard to keep it after you after you get it initially. So it's uh, something to be very proud of, and a, a personal a, I, call, I consider it a personal best. And and Terry, what is required for being becoming a member of the National Association of Legal Investigators? Nally has a standard. We are primarily criminal defense and civil plaintiffs investigators uh, throughout the country, and that can be either an in-house investigator or someone like you and I who have our own practices and and work for uh, clients uh, attorneys all over the country. And you have to have at least two years of verifiable employment experience in the field prior to. Uh, applying, and then we conduct a background check and that type of thing for the application process. We are not a general admission, what I uh, call, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, association. We do have a, a standard that we uh, require folks to meet, and then we verify that before you know we offer them the invitation to become a member of NALI. Yeah, good. And um, so can you give the uh, the site for the website if people want to pursue Absolutely. looking into Nally further? Absolutely. Uh, you can go to our website at www.nally.com. And, uh, N-A-L-I.com. Can, that's right, N-A-L-I.com. Uh, and you can find out um, everything you need to know, everything about the Certified Legal Investigator Program, about how to become a member of Nally, our history, who our officers, our members, and everything right there on our website. Okay, good. Great, and uh, and we're all waiting with anticipation for the ducks to march through the lobby uh, at the hotel, right? I love the Peabody ducks. You know, I, yeah, I, I, I'm fortunate to live 90 miles from Memphis and have been to the Peabody many times in my life, and it's it's just a phenomenal thing to see. Uh, I was in the lobby uh, just before I came up to to call in for our show today, and and they were already getting getting the, the lobby ready because it will be packed door-to-door with people who are there at 11 o'clock to see them uh, march in. Very cute. Very cute. Very fun. Fun venue for a conference. Yeah. So so let's talk about some of your cases, Terry, because you've had just some really uh, interesting cases. I mentioned the WorldCom case. Let's talk about Scott Sullivan and his case. So tell me how you got involved in that. Well, it's strange. Uh, Francie, you know, we, we talk about from time to time about you never know where your next case is going to come from when the phone rings. And, uh, and one of the advantages of being a member of NALI is that we have uh, members throughout the United States and several foreign countries. And mm-hmm. I was in my office one day, and I got a call from a, a NALI member down in Miami, Florida, who uh, told me that he had referred me to a law firm there that he did a lot of work for. They were looking for someone in Mississippi because they had a case that was based here, and uh, they re- asked for a referral, so he had given them my information, so he gave me a call to, to let me know that they may be calling. And, in fact, mm-hmm. they did, and it happened that it was Roy Black, uh, a famous attorney Roy Black's law office, who was calling. And uh, they called me, and we talked for quite a while, and I had to submit uh, my resume to them and a number of other things just to, you know, to, to 
prove who I was and my, my experience and that sort of thing for them to vet me because it was a, a very, they, and they didn't even tell me at the time who the client was or what the case was, but it would require a, a lot of work in Mississippi, and they were looking for somebody to be able to do that here. Mm-hmm. And a couple of days later, they called me back and just, and they read me in and told me who the client was, that it was Scott Sullivan, who was the former chief financial officer of WorldCom, and that it was about the WorldCom scandal, which at that time was $16 billion and uh, was the largest in U.S. history at that time. Of course, now with people like Bernie Madoff with $60 billion and, and above, it uh, mm-hmm. seems, seems kind of minor compared to that now, but at the time it was even bigger than Enron, which had just broken loose about a year before. And so through an alley connection, through a referral from a fellow alley member, uh, I got involved in the case and worked on it for the next 14 months with uh, Mr. Black and his legal team. And um, till we and prepared for trial, I've spent a lot of time uh, interviewing folks, past employees of, of WorldCom. I actually went to their uh, facility with two of the lawyers from Miami who came up and went mm-hmm. through records that they finally allowed us access to. And it was just so strange because it was just things was Bernie Ebers, is the, as you know, was the poster boy for in the face of WorldCom. And right. he was he was a little different. He was kind of a, they called him the uh, Wall Street cowboy because Bernie was just a regular guy in his own way. He wore cowboy boots a lot and khakis and a button-down shirt most of the time when you would see him in downtown Jackson. And his office was done in kind of a southwestern motif. But it, there was nothing in there except boxes of records that they had stored and all those the executive wings. You know, it was kind of eerie hmm. uh, when we went down. Sounds there. like yeah. It well, was. so. It's- so this was Scott Sullivan's criminal case, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, because there were there were also lawsuits that were civil lawsuits. Oh, there were there were many on. civil lawsuits which yeah. I did not have anything to do with. This was Scott's criminal prosecution in federal court. In federal court, which is a much different venue than state courts are. Abs- absolutely, and this was in the Southern District of New York uh, in Manhattan, uh, as it was the venue they chose. So it was uh, a lot different than even being in a local federal district court here in. In the southeast U.S., it was very different. So you say they chose that venue. How does that happen? Well, apparently in federal court, in criminal cases particularly, and in, and in civil cases, they do they can do what's called venue shopping. And apparently you can choose to prosecute somebody anywhere that one of the offenses took place or where one of the parties resides. And since this, this took place in Wall Street, um, well, a lot of people who are affected there. Public's calling, Terry. Yeah, that's Your public's okay. calling. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm walking into the closet here in my room at the hotel. <laughs> uh, they'll, they'll call back. Um, but it was it was funny that they they did that. But that's where most of the effect was because it was a Wall Street case with a lot of people in the New York area and, and through the the stock exchanges how they they traded their stock. So that's, okay, that's we need, Terry, excuse me for interrupting. We need to take a quick break. Sure. Hang on just a second. We'll return shortly with private investigator Terry Cox. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Hi there. I'm back with my guest, Boonville, Mississippi, private investigator, Terry Cox. And Terry, you were just talking about doing venue shopping on federal cases. And tell me again who it was was in New York that you were able to choose that or they were able to choose that venue? Well, the reason was is the uh, WorldCom was a uh, publicly traded company. And so a lot of the activity around that the criminal charges were based on were things that took place in New York through the stock exchange and the SEC. So they chose that jurisdiction to uh, prosecute all the folks in, uh, Bernie Evers and Scott Sullivan and the others that were uh, criminally prosecuted in that case. And But Scott Sullivan, he was originally charged in, in Mississippi, is that right? No, no, he was never not charged in Mississippi. Uh, and he was charged, they were all charged originally in, in the federal court in the Southern District of New York. Okay. All right. Huh. But because well, that's... WorldCom was a Mississippi-based company, so all of their, their business and, their, and their, okay. their records and everything were here, as well as a lot of the employees and witnesses that we interviewed and, and the investigation that we conducted. What a fascinating case. And was there, um, was there a CPA firm involved like there was in the Enron case, or was it all internal? Yes, there was. Um, and it was... Um, wasn't Ernst and Young, and right now for the life of me, uh, they went they they went defunct after that that, uh, that big fiasco with them because they they had their own internal auditors as well that were supposed to be working with the accounting company firm, and none of them saw these things because the internal folks, which were directed by Mr. Sullivan, 
at the direction of Bernie Evers, who was the CEO, uh, were doing these things and hiding them from the outside uh, accounting firm. And then finally, somebody started picking up on it, um, and they they started trying to figure out what was going on, and that's how the investigation finally broke. And what kinds of things were they doing, Terry? They were they were adjusting their numbers with their stock expectations to to the folks on Wall Street, so that their numbers would show that they were more profitable than they were, so that their stock would stay. Uh, on the higher end of the scale as far as the worth, and they were doing things like Bernie Evers had millions of shares, let's say, and instead mm-hmm. of when Bernie needed money to buy a trucking company he was interested in, instead of selling off shares, which might scare shareholders, that Bernie Evers, the CEO, was selling shares of WorldCom, they extended him personal loans up in the several million dollars range where he bought mm-hmm. a cattle ranch, the, the largest cattle ranch in the northern hemisphere in Canada, and he bought a trucking company that he ran for some time as well as as side businesses. But he was running his own personal finances through the board and through the WorldCom so that they would not he would not have to sell off shares and make them liquid so that he could, could invest in these other businesses. So were they all charged with conspiracy as well? Uh, yeah. They were, and they were, two of the junior officers pled early in the thing. Mr. Evers held out to the last, and so did Mr. Sullivan. They, We worked this case like it was going to trial, and until about a week before trial, we still thought we were going to trial. And eventually, they, Mr. Black and his legal team finessed the situation to the point that they were able to reach a, a plea agreement with the government for Mr. Sullivan, which would include some jail time, and that he mm-hmm. would also, of course, testify uh, against Mr. Evers, because without Mr. Sullivan, they didn't have anything against Mr. Evers. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So he turned state's evidence, or exactly. actually federal evidence in this case. Right. And uh, and then he got, Sullivan got a pretty hefty sentence, didn't he? he? As I recall, he got five years to serve. That doesn't seem like very much, actually. <laughs> well, but, uh, no, I think I think then, Bernie I think Bernie Evers got either sixteen to, to twenty somewhere in that range. I think, and yeah. of course, he was considerably older than than Scott. So, yeah, and then um, then Scott also had a lot of uh, fines and uh, oh, yeah. restitution and all that kind of business well, that he, had, he to had to give pay back for. his last bonus from the company. Which was, I believe, as I recall, was fifteen or sixteen million dollars was his annual bonus that year. He had to give that back. Sixteen million dollars. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a bonus. That's a that's a bonus. <laughs> yeah, it that really is definitely is. a bonus. Wow. Okay. And and was there anything different about that case, Terry, or anything you found really unusual that you uh, or that you learned uh, that was different than what you normally do on your regular cases? There was, Francie, because it was such a bookkeeping and and paper trail-based case, and it was so intricate when you get into accounting, accounting uh, statutes and accounting uh, the best best practices and that type of thing, and you get into these things. And you, when we were able to go to uh, 
Jackson, Mississippi, and go to the World Comp facility and look through some of the records we were looking for, you know, we were looking at these purchase orders and 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 checks, return checks for different things that they were buying, and you know, it would be five million dollars here, six million dollars here, twelve million dollars there. The cheapest thing I saw, and I'll never forget this, was they bought like ten Dell computers for sales reps, and it was like thirty thousand dollars. And I thought, hmm. well, that's a realistic number that real people can understand. But I looked at the, the two lawyers who were with me, and I said, you know, real people don't understand these numbers. These are massive numbers that it's hard for mm-hmm. an average person on a jury to get their head wrapped around uh, when you're dealing with five and ten and twenty million dollars at a at a time for some mm-hmm. pet project that was going on. So that was that was pretty interesting with the amount of money that you were looking at. Absolutely, and because you are trained and you got a fraud certification mm-hmm. that assisted you in doing the financial investigation. Oh, sure. And of course, we had one of the lawyers was also a CPA that I was working mm-hmm. with, and so they, they, she was there. Uh, Maria Nira, who is the other attorney uh, for Mr. Black's firm, was there, and myself. And so she knew everything that we needed to be looking for and all. But it was it was just really kind of mind boggling because there was this whole executive suite that they had closed off and literally sealed like a crime scene, where all the mm-hmm. records were stored and they were stacked to the ceiling all the way down the hallways, the conference rooms, all the offices. It was just this massive amount. It would have taken several tractor-trailer loads to, to get all these records to, to move them someplace. It was just how that did you much possibly, paper. How did you possibly know what to go through and know what to gather fortunately, or, or what they, even to look at? Yeah, fortunately, they had cat, kind of cataloged them uh, by year in, in the stacks that they had made with these things. So it was, we were looking for specific things during certain years, and uh, some of them actually certain months, so it was easier to, to narrow it down and get to some of the documents. But if they had not done that, it would have just been an astronomical task that you know mm-hmm. it would have just taken forever to do. Interesting, fascinating. I can't imagine. You know, I mean, uh, I've done cases with you know like maybe ten thousand documents. Oh yeah, but. But this sounds like millions of documents. Oh, it, it, I'm sure it was right? yeah. in, in the millions. Yeah. 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 It was, it was wow. just massive amount of, of file boxes and paperwork. It was just crazy. Now, and this was a high profile case. So, did you were you ever contacted by the press? How did I mean? Because I know it was in the press every day for, a, for was, several but, months. You know, this case is so much different from the Mary Winkler case that I worked on and all because WorldCom was the bad guy. And, they, and Bernie Evers was the face of WorldCom. So most of the media attention you saw was toward the company as the company and Bernie Evers himself. He saw very little information coming out about Scott Sullivan or the investigation that we were doing. So it really mm-hmm. gave us the freedom to go about doing our work and not being bothered by the media, like the, the very different uh, situation with the Mary Winkler case that I worked here in Tennessee. Yeah, and Scott's defense must have been that I was just doing what I was told to do. Essentially, that was it. Yeah. yeah. He didn't yeah. do anything without Bernie's okay and, and his directive. Yeah. And, and that's what he and, uh, testified to in, at, at Bernie's trial. Yeah, and Bernie was the big fish that they really wanted to get anyway. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and without Scott Sullivan, they didn't have anything on Bernie because there was no paper trail. Uh, Bernie Evers was a very low-tech kind of guy even back in the, mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. And Scott was the technical guy, and he was the accounting guy. 
And so he would just tell Scott, this is what I want done, handle it. And uh, without Scott's knowledge of the conversations, telephone conversations and face-to-face meetings, they didn't have anything on, on Bernie Evers that they could run with and convict him. They had to have him. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk about uh, Mary Winkler. Okay. You, how did you get involved in that case? Well, uh, another one of those things, uh, you, uh, I believe, saw Steve Faris a few years ago when we spoke in Nashville about Mary's case. And his uh, cousin and law partner, Tony Faris, will be speaking here tomorrow at our Memphis conference. The Faris Law Firm is a very high-profile criminal and civil firm here based in North Mississippi, and they practice all over the Mid-South. And Steve was contacted by a, co- a friend of his who was a lawyer here in Memphis who was Mayor Winkler's cousin. And like on Friday night after they had found Mary and the girls down in South Alabama, and said, Steve, I've got a real problem here. This guy's a civil lawyer. He's not a criminal lawyer. So I've got a, a family member that's in real trouble. I think she's going to need a really good uh, criminal defense lawyer. You know, would you consider helping me? Will you go and talk to her at least? And, and so Steve, because he's been a friend of this guy for 30 years, said, sure, I'll be glad to go and, and speak to her and see what we can do to help her. So he did that on, on Saturday and met with Mary for quite a long time. And then on Monday morning, I was in South Alabama at the time uh, going to testify in a death penalty case. I was working down there with another lawyer. And on Sunday night, I saw Steve on TV on on uh, 60 Minutes, whatever it was, that where they had interviewed him. And then again, on Monday morning, he was on Good Morning America. So driving to court an hour away that morning uh, with uh, my attorney friend that I was working with down there, I called Steve just to tell him how good he looked on TV that that morning. And uh, uh-huh. and he he said, but I'm glad you called. He said, you know, I want you working on this case with me. He said, I got good news and bad news. I said, okay. I said, he said, what do you want first? I said, I don't care. Just give it to me. He said, the good news is it's going to be a heck of a case. I said, okay. <laughs> and he said, the second, the other, the bad news is we're going to do it all pro bono. Wow. And I went dead silent from it. I said, pro bono. <laughs> he said, yep. He said, these folks don't have any money. This is, is a terrible situation. They're going to need our help. If you can do it, Terry, I understand. But if you can't, I understand that, too. And he said, but you know I want you working on this case with it. I said, fine. I'm in. I said, but I made him make me one promise. I said, Steve, just don't let me lose my house <laughs> while we're All working right. for this Here, lady pro bono. I got to hear more about this. We got to take a break right now. We'll be right, right back to discuss more on Terry's interesting cases. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-350. 
C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. IRB Search is where quality matters. IRB provides access to the best online data for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB data gives you strength in numbers, allowing you to access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified, and you'll receive a two-week free trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm back with my guest, Terry Cox, and we're talking about the Mary Winkler case, the lady that killed her pastor husband, uh, pastor uh, minister of the Church of Christ. Um, so, Terry, you just were saying that the attorney said, we're going to do this case pro bono. Now, he didn't ask you if you were willing to do the case pro bono. <laughs> he just said, we're going to do this pro bono, yeah. meaning you don't get paid, nobody gets paid. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, and you said, okay. <laughs> I said, just don't let me lose my house during the course of this thing. <laughs> and, and, of course, you didn't lose your and house. And, of course, I didn't. Uh, things just worked out. You know, it was like Providence came in and other cases came in and the money continued to flow, which was wonderful. But, you know, we, we lived with that case for the next 14 months. Uh, mm-hmm. It was the top news story on CNN and all the major uh, news outlets throughout the country every day until the day of the verdict and Anna Nicole's death knocked us off the first spot. Oh, so. right. That was the same time. <laughs> we got our verdict huh. the same day that Anna Nicole Smith died. So she, she knocked us in the number two place. My goodness. Now, speaking of high-profile cases, did, mm-hmm. how, how did this work with you and the press and what was going on surrounding all the media attention? Well, it was a, it was a lot different from the Warcom case, as I mentioned earlier, because the mo- first morning I drove up to, to Selmer, which is only about 30 minutes from my home in North Mississippi, I came over a little hill just before you get to the courthouse there, and all I saw was a sea of satellite trucks. And, <laughs> and, and, I'm serious. It was just like, come, come over the horizon, and there is just the entire parking lot and open area around the courthouse was covered with satellite trucks from every major news outlet in the country. And I thought, Lord, what have I gotten myself into? You know, mm-hmm. but uh, right. the, the media was was pretty respectful to us. Steve and Leslie Ballin, who uh, were the two lead counsels on the case, we spoke with them early on and asked them to respect 
that we needed to do our job. We knew that they needed to do their job. We set up some ground rules and some boundaries, and they were respectful of that. Uh, we we talked to them when we could, and and when we couldn't. When the judge told us that we couldn't discuss certain things with the media, we did not do that. And mm-hmm. um, so that, it, it worked out pretty well. But where in Scott's case, I could go and do whatever I needed to do, uh, and nobody even knew I was in the middle of this thing. With this right. case, everybody knew who I was, and all these people had come from all over the country to the little town of Selmer, Tennessee, and they had nothing better to do than to go out and try and work this thing on their own. So for the mm. next couple of weeks that I was in it, I was a couple of steps or 30 minutes behind half a dozen reporters who had been to see this person or that person who were potential witnesses in the thing. So it, it made it a little more difficult. And how do you deal with that? Tell, what, what would be the process of going to somebody's door and they've already talked to the press? Well, you, you just ask them, number one, does anybody talk to you? Yeah, just, well, the press was here a little while ago. Fine, you know, I have, I'm working with the defense. We represent Ms. Weekler. Do you have some time you could talk to me? Sure. And, and most everyone was very respectful and, and helpful. They would sit down and talk to me, uh, answer the questions I had. They, everyone was in a state of shock that this mm. actually happened, number one. And because many of these people knew the Winklers or thought they knew them because they went to church with them uh, at the 4th Street uh, Church of Christ there in Selmer. Uh, Matthew was their pastor. Ma- uh, Mary was the pastor's wife. And they knew their three little girls. You know, And they just didn't have a clue that anything was going on in their house that would cause something like this to happen. And so they, him, as the information yeah. came out, they learned more and more, and they people started looking back at things, you know, and events and times and places and going, you know what, I, I can see now how that might have been. And so they started huh. realizing that things are not what they appear uh, a lot of times, and uh, unless you're living in a house, you don't really know what's going on there. Exactly. And you can imagine the shock. I mean, in any community, it would be a shock. But in a small community where people know each other and they, they grow up together, it's it's so much more of a shock when something like this happens oh, so absolutely. close to home. Sure. So so what did happen, Terry? What? How did this all come about? Well, how did... Mary and, and Matthew had been married for about 11 and a half years at, at that time. They had uh, three little girls. Uh, the baby was just about a year old. And they were, this was Matthew's first assignment as a, a regular pulpit preacher. He had been a youth pastor prior to that in his other assignments. And they had been in Selma for about a year. And things were going very well. He was very liked and, and all as a good pulpit preacher. I had the respect of the community and of his, his uh, congregation. And Mary was the perfect little uh, pastor's wife. She always put on a happy face. The children were always well-dressed and well-behaved and everything. And, and they just appeared to be the perfect little family. But the truth of the matter is, uh, at home, things were much, much different. Uh, Matthew was not the glowing, loving father and husband. He was very oppressive uh, personally and uh, psychologically. Uh, he, he was physically abusive on at least two accounts that we, could, uh, that we brought up in court. Uh, but mostly it was, it was the the psychological oppression. He kept Mary and the girls under his thumb all the time, and a lot of that was because of the Church of Christ culture. And I'm not saying any, trying to cast any aspersions on the, the Church of Christ. I have family members of my own who are members of the Church of Christ. It's a fine uh, family of faith. But 
this was kind of skewed, and Matthew took it very, very seriously that he was the head of the household, and nothing happened in that house that he didn't authorize and make sure it happened. So it was a very different picture inside the home than it was outside in the public. And he was, uh, his, both his father and his grandfather were Church of Christ uh, ministers, correct? He was, he was. Actually, Matthew was a fifth-generation Church of Christ. Fifth-generation. Mm-hmm. Wow. Fifth-generation. And the Selmer's little church was only about 250, 275 members. That's about right. So it's yeah. kind of tiny. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so... Um, so did Mary just kind of reach her end about the oppression she was living under, or what happened? Yeah, a lot of things were going on with them. They were going through some very serious financial uh, difficulties that had kind of started to mount up on them. Mary had gotten some checks from a scam, a, kind of like the Nigerian check scam. Uh, and these came from Canada, as I recall, and had gotten a couple of checks for like $5,000. One was for, I believe, $8,000. And she deposited them in the bank and found out later that it was under Matthew's direction and then immediately went out and spent this money toward their bills and stuff. And then after several weeks, the checks came back as as fraudulent checks. So the bank had called Mary and was telling her that she and Matthew needed to come in and they could help them work through this and it would be okay. But apparently she did not want Matthew to know about this and she tried to keep it from him as long as she could. And some other things were going on, like I said, just a general oppression that was going on in the house and, and all. And then that, this, the morning that this all took place, there was a bit of an altercation in the home, and Mary knew that she needed to talk to Matthew and knew that uh, she had to tell him about the bank business. He didn't want to uh, talk to her. He wanted to go back to sleep after the baby had woken up crying and, and he had gone down there and, and been a little bit abusive toward the baby, uh, he would cup his hand over their nose and mouth and, and almost suffocate a child, one, their children when they would cry and to make them mm. stop crying. And this mm. came out, and this is all came out in testimony. So this is not, uh, you know, this, this is not talking out of school about anything or mm-hmm. breaking privilege. This is all public record. And so that happened and he went back to bed because it was still early in the morning and Mary knew that she needed to talk to him, needed his attention. And she closed the bedroom door, and she, he did, did not want to talk to her, apparently. And somehow or another, she got his uh, shotgun out of the top of the closet and tried to get him to talk to her, and the gun went off. That's a, she, wait a minute. She was holding a gun on him, trying to get him to talk to her? Yeah. yeah but uh, he okay. was, his back was to her. You know, he was, oh. he was facing away from her on the bed and just ignoring her. And at some point in time, the, uh, the shotgun discharged, and Matthew was shot in the back. And he rolled off the bed. And um, at that point, uh, Mary realized this had happened. Apparently, and during the testimony in court, uh, Dr. Yeager, who was the psychologist that worked with Mary throughout the, the pretrial and the trial and testified as to her findings, that Mary suffered from PTSD from uh, mm-hmm. events that took place in her life early on in her life, the death of her little sister uh, was something that she had never dealt with, and it's something that the, the families in uh, very strict families in the Church of Christ did not deal with. They just didn't talk about it, and that's how you dealt mm-hmm. with it. And mm-hmm. then the oppression and everything that had been going on for the 11 years of their marriage, and then the financial stuff, it all just kind of came together that morning in a perfect storm, 
so to speak, and uh, this it ended up with Matthew um, being dead. Wow. It was a very tragic, very, very tragic yeah. situation. Yeah. And were the, the children were all in the house? They were all correct? in the house. They were in their beds. And um, Mary, one of the, the oldest daughter, tried to come into the bedroom. Mary told her, you know, just go back to bed, and she'd be out in a minute that Daddy wasn't feeling well. And so she went and got the children, gathered them up, got them dressed, put them in the family van, and left. Now, the only thing she took with her, other than the three children, was an extra pair of socks for the baby. Hmm. You know, so wow. uh, it was one of those things when she was asked later, why did she leave like that? Since she knew that things were going to get tough very quickly for her and that she wanted to have a good memory with her with her girls before things went bad. So where did she, where did she end up going? Uh, they, they went to Jackson, Mississippi and spent the night in a hotel there that night. Uh, she found a, a hotel that had an indoor swimming pool so that the girls could swim. And then the next day they went down to... Orange Beach, uh, Alabama, and spent the day at the beach there with them. And by that time, there was a, a missing persons, uh, an Amber Alert that went out um, the day before, the night before, and they uh, were spotted by the uh, Orange Beach, Alabama uh, police, and they they took her into custody and took the girls into protective custody at that point and called the Tennessee who, authorities. Who found the body? The uh, the folks from the church. That night, when Matthew didn't show up, it was a Wednesday night, did not show up for prayer meeting that night, since something must be wrong. So they waited about an hour, then they went over to the house, and one of the parishioners had, uh, who was one of the elders of the church, apparently had an extra key to the house, because there were no lights on or anything, and they went in to check the house and, and found Matthew. Oh, wow. Yep. Can you imagine? Wow. Terry, we've got to take another break. I'm sorry. Sure. Stay tuned for more from... Mississippi investigator Terry Cox. We will be right back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declass. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today, private investigator Terry Cox, and I were just discussing the case he worked. He was the chief investigator for Mary Winkler. Mary Winkler was the woman who was the wife of a fifth-generation minister of the Church of Christ, and uh, she killed him. And this is about the case, and, and you were just saying off on the break, Terry, that uh, it, it did go to trial, and she was convicted. Yes. And then what happened after that? Well, Mary was convicted. We had a seven-day trial, uh, and it was covered live on court TV, the whole thing. And uh, she was found guilty by the jury there in Selmer of not first-degree capital murder, which she was originally charged with, but with culpable negligence manslaughter, which in Tennessee is the least thing you can be found guilty of and still be a felony, essentially, where there's a death involved. And she received... uh, I think it was a three- or five-year sentence, but it was all suspended except for, I believe it was 230 days uh, to serve, and she had already served 150, one or two of those days before we could get her out on bond originally. So she spent about another 10 days in the county jail there in Selmer, and she spent the last 60 days or so of her sentence in a mental health facility for counseling. And where is she now? Uh, she's over in East Tennessee, uh, near McMinnville. Uh, she's not in McMinnville, but in a, a little town near there, I understand. She has custody of all three of her daughters, uh, supporting and raising them, and I understand she's doing very well. She's not remarried? No, not to my knowledge. She's not yeah. crazy. Well, that was an amazing outcome, but I, but I understand from what you said that the, the her defense was battered spouse syndrome. Yes, that that's right. Yeah, and uh, and you know, like you said, when we started out talking about this case, nobody ever knows what's going on inside somebody's home. Oh, absolutely. And, you well, know, unless and, you're there in it, you, you don't. Unless have you're there, and often when something happens, neighbors are interviewed and they say, "Oh, they were such a nice family. I can't imagine this happened." Exactly. Uh, but you just never know what's going on. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, you have had so many interesting cases. Now, on this one, were you ever approached by the press, Terry, to to ask questions, or or did you just kind of circumvent them altogether? No, no I, I actually had a good bit of interaction with the, the press, particularly during uh, the time of the trial and a time when we spent uh, about six or seven days trying to get Mary out on bond. Uh, they were they just camped out there, and Steve Ferris's son, Steve Ferris Jr who was an attorney on the case, and I spent uh, five days at the courthouse there in Selmer waiting for the judge to approve a bond for, for Mary and a bonding company to do that. And it was a $750,000 bond, which in a lot of places is not is not unusual. Yeah. But it was the, at the time was the largest bond in McNary County history. And so the judge wanted to make sure that the bonding company who wrote it was capable of backing it up if something happened and that sort of thing. So he was very, very careful. But uh, the media was all outside in waiting, and from time to time we would just 
walk out the front doors, and they'd all stand up and get ready to go to the cameras. And finally, I just started where I would just start waving my hand, you know, just hang on, everybody. You know, <laughs> we're not going to make mm-hmm. any announcements here or anything. We just mm-hmm. kind of wanted to come out and give you uh, a little heads up as what where we are. And, just wanted to say hi. <laughs> yeah, just want to say hi, maybe have a cup of coffee, you know. But right. they, they, the, the media was really very good to us. We because, like I said, Steve. Faris and Lister Ballin, who are the lead counsels on the thing, laid out the guidelines uh, with them early, and, and they respected that, and we respected them, and so it, it worked out pretty well. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, you know, we don't have much time left, but I, I wanted to touch uh, a little bit on the case you did, United States versus Dillard and Sanf- Stanford. Oh, yeah. Um, that was... Uh, a really high, highly publicized case in Mississippi. It was. Can you tell us what happened with that? Sure. Uh, a man named Billy Ray Stone, who lived in Lee County, Mississippi, which is where Tupelo is located, uh, went off one night and kidnapped a lady and uh, got ran a roadblock, ended up in a pursuit, and at the end of the day he had uh, shot and killed a very popular uh, county sheriff, uh, Harry Ray Presley, and killed him and then two of the deputies, when he exited, uh, uh, Sheriff Presley actually had, had been able to, to shoot him, but he died a little later uh, there at the scene. And it was alleged that some of the deputies had uh, beaten Mr. Stone after he was on the ground and restrained because of their, their being so upset about uh, Sheriff Presley yeah. dying. Sure. And so they were charged in federal court for civil rights violations. Uh, uh, Jason Stanford and Danny Dillard were. Uh, there were originally five deputies charged. The other three were uh, let out of it after some initial uh, additional investigation. But it, at the uh, at, and it went to trial. We spent a week in trial in federal court, and Danny and uh, Jason were both uh, acquitted of the charges after the uh, coroner and medical examiner here in Mississippi, Dr. Stephen Hain, testified that uh, Mr. That the autopsy showed that Mr. Stone was appeared to have seven to eight licks with something that was probably a large mag, police flashlight, maglite type thing, mm-hmm. and that caused his uh, skull fracture. And we were able to show that one of the other deputies who was, was let out of the thing early on uh, had given a statement to the uh, federal pro- uh, prosecutor's office uh, polygraph examiner that he had struck him six to eight times. Uh, himself, and mm-hmm. so there wasn't Danny or Jason, either one that did it. It was that young man that caused his death. Other than the the gunshot wound to his lung that uh, the sheriff had been able to shoot him with uh, before he died. And so, that guy, the one you were talking about, never was charged. That's that's the correct. one that. That's correct. Hmm. He, he was he was given immunity uh, not long after the investigation started, and we never understood that. So immunity for his testimony, right? which he did not have to testify. Uh, his, In fact, we subpoenaed him to testify on behalf of the defense because we knew what he had told the polygrapher, but uh, his attorney was successful in getting the subpoena quashed because it would have uh, violated his Fifth Amendment right. Mm-hmm. Against self-incrimination. Exactly. Exactly. So huh. we didn't have his testimony to, to use in our case, so we called the FBI polygraph examiner which was a little strange for him, testifying for the defense. I'm but, sure it was. But he was a, yeah. he was an honorable guy, and he, he got on the stand and stated what uh, was in his report and his notes, and it, uh, it, shifted, it shifted the entire case right there. 
and the emergency medical people were testifying for the prosecution, right? They, they were. They were. Uh, just about everybody on the scene except for the five deputies that were uh, investigated on this thing and uh, were testifying for the prosecution. Amazing. Well, it sounds like you did an amazing job with that. Who was the attorney that represented them? Uh, Tony Farise and Steve Farise and then uh, Joey Langston and uh, Zach Scrubs were the four attorneys on, on the case. Now, and there was two defendants. So did you work on both defendants' cases? Yes. Because they had a, a consolidated defense. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. So that's that's unusual. Normally we just work for one defendant because there's a conflict when there's more than one. Exactly. But their their statements and their roles in the thing did not con- conflict with each other. So they, mm-hmm. it worked out that we could put a joint defense together. Fascinating. And another high-profile situation. I'm sure that the press were everywhere you went on that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, it yeah. was because uh, Sheriff Presley was a very, very beloved sheriff there. He was very popular. And this happened on uh, the 6th of the July. So it was a couple of days after the 4th of July there in Lee County, and it was a, a manhunt thing. And it was it was a very high-profile thing because he was killed in the line of duty during this. And then they came around and, and tried to charge five of his deputies with civil rights violation on the man who killed the sheriff. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, it, that, was, yeah. it, it, it was just really kind of a strange thing altogether having to defend these guys, but we did and we were successful and very pleased with the way it came out. And where are they now? Are they still working for the, the Sheriff's Department? Did oh, they no. go no, someplace uh, else? I, I think Danny, I don't know for sure, I think Danny went to work later. They both left law enforcement for a period of time. And uh, Danny, I believe, went to work for the uh, Mississippi Department of Transportation uh, at one time, as I recall. And I don't know where where Jason landed, but they're, as far as I know, they're both doing fine. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's hard for us when we're not, you know, not in, in law enforcement to understand what really goes on in those high stress, high emotional situations. Um, we, you know, we have to thank our law enforcement folks all the time for taking care of business. And unfortunately, this came back to haunt them, but the end result was good. Yeah, it was. It was, it, and it was the right result, frankly. You know, and even the prosecutor Absolutely. said at the end that it was the right result based on the evidence. Really? Well, that's yeah. unusual for them to admit that. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. It was. Well, Terry, it's been a delight talking to you. Uh, you have so many interesting cases that we could have talked about. This is kind of the tip of the iceberg, and but I appreciate uh, uh, you being on the show today, and appreciate you being here at the conference in Memphis. So I'd just like to say real quickly, many thanks to also to my sponsors, IRB Search. IRB Search is a data provider who provides investigative professionals catered exclusively to private investigators, process servers, bail bondsmen, judgment recovery, and repossession specialists. So if you're interested in that company, go to www.irb. IRB as in boy, search one word dot com. And then, of course, my other great sponsor is PI Magazine, www.pimagazine.com. So thank you again, Terry. It's been um, just a delight talking to you. Francie, it was and my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me on your program. Uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. And I look forward to spending time with you this weekend here in Memphis. 
Okay. So tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to PI's Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.